0: All right, here we go. Welcome to the show.
1: I am so glad you could join us today. Want to give a very quick shout out to to uh, those of you who have taken the time and the effort to share the word and let other people know that uh, the Brian Hyde Show is on the air or that it's available by podcast. Thanks for sharing the links. Thanks for sharing the show notes, and and above all, thank you for subscribing. Oh, and I and I want to thank those of you um, on on the Anchor FM platform. When you subscribe, there is an option if you wish to donate. If you want to become a monthly donor, I mean, you could do a dollar, five dollars, ten bucks a month to become a sponsor and a supporter of this show. I so appreciate those of you who find value in what I'm doing here and, and who have uh, graciously shared some of your substance with me. I, my promise to you is that I treat those funds as if they are sacred. Uh, what I do, I do not just because I'm trying to make a name for myself and get rich and famous. I actually kind of gave up on that quite a while ago. I do what I do because I believe that this is a time where we have to speak out. We have to be willing to, to stand. And and I feel very blessed that I have a life trajectory that has prepared me to be one of those many voices speaking out in defense of personal liberty, in defense of the free market and private property rights, and most importantly, in defense of our freedom of conscience. I mean, there's, there's a little weight of responsibility that goes there. But it is such a privilege to be able to to have a platform from which I can I can stand up for those things which I believe are among the most important things in our lives. Much more important than fame or fortune. These are the things that will matter because they're the things we want to see perpetuated and handed down to our kids and to our our children's children. So thank you so much for those of you who have found the time or made the effort to help get the word out that uh, this is a source of information available for those looking for A little truth and light amidst all the chaos. So let's talk about self-censorship for a little bit, shall we? I don't feel terrible pressure these days, you know, to, well, now you can only talk about these things that are safe and that most people are going to agree on. And it's not that I want to go out there and just, uh, you know, I don't want to, I'm going to pick on Alex Jones a little bit. I don't want to just rant and rave. Okay. I don't want to, I don't want to be this over the top, you know, hyperbolic, personality who's just always angry about something and that's why you tune in what's brian go off going off on today so i don't feel like i talk about terribly controversial things and yet by talking about freedom by talking about freedom of conscience by talking about free markets that's considered pretty controversial to some and the pushback while minor at this point is still very real And I know that even though I have a little bit of a public platform here, there are other people who feel a very strong need to self-censor in their day-to-day lives. Like, there are things you just don't bring up at work. And now we're starting to see, thanks to the whole cancel culture mentality, there are things you don't even dare tweet out on Twitter or post on Facebook or share in any kind of a public forum. And I'm not talking about, you know, uh, really unpopular or provocative topics. It could be something way simpler and way less offensive than you would think. And yet here we are. We live in a time where there are people who wake up in the morning looking, actively seeking someone who says or thinks something that they don't agree with, who doesn't have the ideological purity. And then they set out to do what they can to harm that person. And it's primarily through taking away their job or otherwise discrediting them or shaming them in the public's eyes. So you can't blame people for wanting to self-censor, right? They want to, you know, they want to be careful they don't end up in the crosshairs of the uh, cancel culture mob. Brad Palumbo, in a piece that's published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, talks about why George Orwell's warning on self-censorship is more relevant than ever. And as you'll see in this piece, he describes how George Orwell warned that government doesn't have to be the censor for free expression and free speech to be fatally stifled. He starts with a quote from Orwell. This is from Animal Farm. Rule one, speak your mind at your own peril. Rule two, never risk commissioning a story that goes against the narrative. Rule three, never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Eventually, the publisher will cave to the mob, the editor will get fired or reassigned, and you'll be hung out to dry. Now, Brad Palumbo says... This is a quotation from George Orwell's preface to Animal Farm titled Freedom of the Press, where he was discussing the chilling effect of the Soviet Union's influence on global publishing and debate far beyond the reach of its official censorship laws. He says, no, wait. No, it isn't. <laughs> Actually, this is an excerpt from the resignation letter of New York Times opinion editor and writer Barry Weiss. She penned it this week where she blew the whistle on the hostility toward intellectual diversity that now reigns supreme at the country's most prominent newspaper. A contrary and moderate, but hardly right wing in her politics. The journalist describes the outright harassment and cruelty she faced at the hands of her colleagues to the point where she could no longer continue her work. Here's what she said. She said my own forays into wrongthink have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They've called me a Nazi and a racist. I've learned to brush off comments about how I'm writing about the Jews again. Several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by co workers. She says my work and character are openly demeaned on company wide Slack channels where masthead editors regularly weigh in. There some coworkers insist I need to be rooted out if this company is to be a truly inclusive one, while others post axe emojis next to my name. Still, other New York Times employees publicly smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter, with no fear that harassing me will be met with appropriate action. They never are. End quote. Now, Brad Palumbo says, Weiss's letter reminds us of the crucial Orwell warning, ma- the crucial warning rather, Orwell made in his time to preserve a free and open society, legal protections from government censorship, while crucial, are not nearly enough. And he has a tweet here from Robbie Suave from Reason, which is showing the curator of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, who was removed at the request of irate employees because he said they would not exclude the consideration of the art of white men at this museum. The guy's name is Gary Gerls. And what he said was, I do not believe I have ever said that it is important to collect the art of white men. I have said that it is important that we do not exclude consideration of the art of white men. Now, for this, he was accused of white supremacy. He ended up resigning. The uh, employees of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art said his removal was, quote, non-negotiable. Okay, Government didn't remove him from his job. It was pressure- from employees and from the woke culture mob that removed him. But but I ask you, is there anything he said there that really would merit this? And I guess it's going to depend on your subjective point of view. Well, you know, he said the word white. <laughs> that must mean he's a white supremacist. I don't think so. And Brad Palumbo lists a whole list. Just I mean, there's a whole litany of people who have suffered the fate that Barry Weiss has suffered, and this is what the cancel culture looks like in action. A Palestinian immigrant and business owner had his lease canceled had his restaurant boycotted after activists dug up his daughter's old offensive social media posts from when she was a teenager. Or how about the Hispanic construction worker who was fired for making the OK sign, which supposedly is now a white supremacist hand signal? Or the soccer player that was pushed off the Los Angeles Galaxy roster because his wife, posted something that someone thought was racist on Instagram. The head opinion editor of the New York Times was fired and his colleague demoted after they published an op-ed by a U.S. senator arguing a widely held position and liberal colleagues claimed that those words put black lives in danger. Then you have the random Boeing executive recently mobbed and fired because 30 years ago he wrote an article arguing against having women serve in combat roles in the military. Or the data analyst who tweeted out the findings of a research paper by a black scholar, by the way, about the ineffectiveness of protests and was fired after colleagues claimed their safety was threatened. Or this one led by progressives as prominent as New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, a woke mob tried to get a Chicago economist fired from his editorship of an economics journal for tweeting that embracing defund the police undercuts the Black Lives Matter movement's chance of achieving real reform. Now, Brad Palumbo says these are just a few examples of many. One important commonality to note is none of them involved actual government censorship. But they all represent chilling crackdowns on free speech. As David French puts it in writing for the dispatch, cruelty bullies employers into firing employees. Cruelty bullies employees into leaving even when they're not fired. Cruelty raises the cost of speaking the truth as best you see it until you find yourself choosing silence. Silence mainly as a pain avoidance mechanism. Now, there's more to this article. We'll come back to it in just a few moments. And we're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about the economics of cancel culture. You may think you don't live in the spotlight, or you may think I'm not out there on a public platform voicing opinions that anybody could find offensive. It doesn't matter. Your voice is actively being silenced whether you think it is or not. We'll be back in a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. You know, there's a reason why
1: the unofficial motto of this program is rebel in wrong think. And it's not so much a matter if we're going to go out there, we're going to be pains in the took to everybody that we meet. It's just a matter of if you want to be free, you better be comfortable with the idea that you're going to be called out for exercising your individuality. I don't know why people with a controlling nature are going to see it as an affront to you not asking permission for them to tell you that it's okay to think this or say that or do this or do that. I've been sharing an article here from Brad Palumbo. This was published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website about why George Orwell's warning on self-censorship is more relevant than ever. And he comes back to this observation that what Orwell warned decades ago is very, very true today. Orwell said, obviously it's not desirable that a government department should have any power of censorship. But the chief danger to freedom of thought and speech at this moment is not the direct interference of government or any official body. If publishers and editors exert themselves to keep certain topics out of print, it's not because they're frightened of prosecution but because they're frightened of public opinion. In this country, he says, uh, this, in, this intellectual cowardice is the worst enemy a journalist or writer has to face, and that fact does not seem to me to have had the discussion it deserves. End quote. Now, Brad Palumbo points out similarly, British philosopher Bertrand Russell noted in a 1922 speech, it makes clear that thought is not free if the professional of certain opinions makes it impossible to earn a living. Now, some might wonder, Brad Palumbo says, why it's so important to protect speech and thought beyond the law. In other words, just because nobody's going to jail over it, how serious can the consequences be? And he says, while understandable as an impulse, this logic misses the point. Free and open speech is the only way a society can, through trial and error, get closer to the truth over time. It was abolitionist Frederick Douglass who described free speech as, quote, the great moral renovator of society and government, end quote. What he meant was that the that only the free speech or the only the free flow, rather, of open speech can challenge existing orthodoxies and evolve society from women's suffrage to the civil rights movement. We would never have made so much progress on sexism and racism without the right to speak freely. Silence, on the other hand, enshrines the status quo, a fact that I don't believe is lost on those who are most vigorously promoting cancel culture. And Brad Palumbo says, as John Stuart Mill put it, quote, if the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. End quote. Palumbo says this great discovery process through free flowing speech first and foremost requires a hands off approach from government, but it still can't occur in a, cu- in a culture that's hostile to dissenting opinion and debate. When airing a differing view can get you mobbed or even put your job in jeopardy. Only society's most powerful or those whose views align with the current orthodoxy will be able to speak openly without fear. So Orwell and Russell were right then, even if we're not only fully, even if we're only fully realizing it now, self-censorship driven by culture, not government, erodes our collective discovery of truth all the same. That's powerful. And isn't that really what we're after here, right? It's not that we don't, we don't use free speech because that allows us to exercise political domination over all others. At least I hope that's not what motivates you. I consider myself a truth seeker. And that means sometimes I have to go where truths can be uncomfortable. I'm sure you've probably noticed that. I probably brought up a few things that have made you go, oh, wow, I really wish you'd talk about something else. But that's how we learn. And and, and in order for us to learn, we've got to be free to encounter truth as well as error. And I guess more importantly, we have to become experts in our own right on being able to sift truth from error. This is why I'm such a huge proponent of getting yourself a liberal arts education. I'm talking about the kind that comes from reading books that are over your head in the privacy of your own home on a consistent basis, exposing your your mind to the greatest thinkers that uh, civilization has ever produced. Even though they were wrong about some things, they were still great thinkers and there's still things you can learn that will help you order your own thoughts by studying them. Let's touch for a moment on the economics of cancel culture. This is from Veronique Rugy. When mob mentality and moral suasion meet the market, she says a wave of hasty firings is sweeping across the country, driven by demands from what some call the cancel culture. New York Times editorial page, James Bennett, page editor James Bennett ran an op-ed from Senator Tom Cotton that displeased the paper's readers and some colleagues. So he lost his job. She talks about the curator at the uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. But she says the list of those who lost their jobs is much longer. The rationale sometimes is as stunningly weak as someone just liking the wrong tweet. And as a result, she says fear has gripped many workers. Any day, any worker can be fired for simply angering a Twitter mob. Meanwhile, employers are left wondering how they should react when one of their employees becomes a target. Every case is different. Employers should be able to dismiss workers, she says, Employment at will remains the best labor policy. However, one piece of wisdom is worth following. During scary, emotional or angry times, don't act hastily. Slow down. Veronique de says there is value in not making rash decisions during stressful times. Mental health professionals often advise grieving families not to make life-altering decisions for a solid year after the death of a loved one. In daily life, some common advice for those about to send a nasty email or text is sleep on it. She says acting out of anger is not uncommon. Mark Twain, for instance, noted anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. Aristotle observed anybody can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way. That is not within everybody's power and is not easy. She says this rule of not acting out of passion is central to our political system. James Madison in Federalist number 10 warns of impetuous mobs or factions united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. And she says, as such. Madison and the Constitution's other architects created a system of governance that discourages fast, immediate action and gratification. The built-in slowdown requirement enshrined in the Constitution is also present in our legal system. Due process means that no stage of legal proceedings can be dispensed with. That prevents government from acting too hastily. Today, the wisdom that inspires our constitutional system and other fields could help private firms when responding to the demands of an impetuous mob. She says, imagine if employers adopted the public position to wait, let's say two weeks or so when faced with advan- with demands that a worker be fired for some alleged claim, such a policy would have a few advantages. First, she says it would give the company time to determine if the accusations are well-founded. It would also allow the company to assess the bigger impact of such a decision on other employees without excessive retaliation costs for not acting quickly enough. Second, a waiting period would allow heads to level and passions to cool. In the age of instantaneous news, the mob might become distracted by other events, allowing a company to assess the situation without the constant pressure. At the end of the waiting period, if the employer decides it still needs to let the employee go, it will have had time to develop an argument for why it's making that decision, as opposed to the contradicting messaging that has surrounded many of the recent firings. Now, Veronique de Rugi says there's a larger issue here, one that we libertarians pay little, too little attention to. What is the proper role of moral suasion on commerce? And she says, if there is no role, then the state with its formal law becomes the only constraint other than market competition. If there is a role, as Aristotle hinted, then let's be sure to do it right. But she says, for now, however, it's easy to see the benefits for all involved if if firms start waiting a little bit before dismissing employees under public pressure. I think this is really sound advice. And to any business or corporation that adopts such a standard, I would say, well done.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder
1: for you, every day that I do this program, I post show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can find them by date, and within there, you will find links to every essay, every story that I talk to. You'll find links to my various guests, and you know you can learn more about them as well. I encourage you, if you're a serious truth seeker, Click on the links, read the stories. Often you'll find supporting evidence, graphs, and other links to other sources within them. Very worthwhile. But again, this is primarily for those who are in the habit of doing their own homework. And I suspect you're one of those people. Just a hunch. If you're listening to this program, the chances that you're just, you know, somebody sitting there with, hey, tell me what to think. That's not you. And it probably never will be. But if you know other people who likewise are looking for good sources of information, point them our way. And I will do my very best not to disappoint. So we've been talking a little bit about cancel culture. We've been talking about how hard it is sometimes to find the truth. This seems like a good place to shift into a little discussion on a free press. And Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a remarkable piece that was published recently, A Free Press No More, Thoughts on America's Enslaved Journalists. Now, I have to confess, as I'm starting out here, I've had kind of a love-hate relationship, but it's mostly been a hate relationship with American media since about, uh, oh, I would guess the early 1990s. That was when I suddenly realized, these guys are shading the truth, or they're spinning things, or there is bias in the newsroom that is just beyond question. And I've been friends with a number of different reporters, and you know, some people I have found, I, I have to admit, there has been a handful of reporters who I believe really are as objective as they can be. And one of the things that endears them to me is the fact that they will admit, look, I have my biases. I just do the best I can not to let those biases creep into what I'm writing. So they report facts. They don't apply labels that would otherwise steer us into this conclusion or that conclusion. And that, to me, is what makes them wonderful journalists. I've also run into quite a few journalists who, well, I don't know, they... If if they're not lecturing me on how important their job is, they're they're telling me what a victim they are, that people think they're fake news. And that's darn Donald Trump with his accusations. And I think, man, you uh, you really don't see it, do you? (laughs) What, what, What you think is is consensus is seen by others as absolute bias. Let's talk about Jeff Minnick's article. He starts with a quote in Latin. Qui custodiet ipsos custodis? and I'm butchering the pronunciation, but it's Latin for who will guard the guardians themselves. And Jeff Minnick says once upon a time, the guardians of freedom and fair play in America were members of the fourth estate, the press. Earlier generations thought of reporters and journalists as watchdogs, keeping their eyes on the machinations of government and rooting out corruption, whether it was public or private. But he says, in the last few years, these guardians have largely gone AWOL, and the watchdogs are more often lapdogs. He says, most of us would agree that we live in an age of misinformation, disinformation, and deception. Without a system of fact-checking or journalistic standards, such fabrications are understandable when they appear on social media. But what about our mainstream media? Whatever we may think of President Trump, it seems we're truly inundated by what he calls fake news reports posing as hard news on television and in our newspapers that more aptly belonged on the editorial pages or, in some cases, in the trash can. He says often the real news is what the mainstream media chooses to spike. Consider, for example, the coronavirus coverage. Every day our news outlets report the growing number of positive cases from people tested for the virus, all the while ignoring the fact that death rates from the virus have plummeted for months. Now, that's good news, but you won't hear it broadcast on the nightly news. Here's another example. How many of us have heard in the last month about how vandals have toppled or desecrated statues of Christ, the Virgin Mary, and saints around our country? They've set fire to three churches, including California's 249-year-old San Gabriel Mission Church. Since the 2016 election, the bias of the news media has become even more blatantly obvious with 90% of mainstream media coverage of the Trump presidency in 2018 being negative. Is it any wonder that a large majority of Americans no longer trust the mainstream media? And he goes on to explain how several developments have helped bring about this deep mistrust. You see, until the 1930s, many reporters never earned a degree in journalism. The writer H.L. Mencken only had one college course to his name, while Ernest Hemingway never even attended college. In contrast, most of those reporting the news today have a college degree. Many majored in journalism. So imbued with the teachings of radical professors, they enter newsrooms with prejudices firmly fixed, ideological biases they transfer to their stories. And unlike reporters from a century ago, many of them received the bulk of their training in a classroom rather than pounding the streets. They share the same political views and culture, and though they may differ and disagree in details, they generally toe the same line of belief. Now, he says, of course, some university-trained editors and reporters still adhere to a code of journalism, truthfulness, accuracy, impartiality, fairness, and so on. The Smoky Mountain News, a generally liberal weekly for which he writes book reviews, he says is one that does this. They have a small staff, but reporters at that paper know the meaning of boots on the ground. They cover city council meetings, interview various officials, attend community events, and ask tough questions when necessary. In contrast... Reporters at some of our major news outlets, especially television, seem to gather their news, as he does, from online sources. Jeff Minnick says, moreover, many of these journalists no longer go after certain stories, following the truth wherever it leads them. Where are the reporters, for example, investigating the donations made in the last two months to Antifa and Black Lives Matter? Bucket loads of money given them by corporations and individuals. Where are the journalists digging into these groups to discover how their foot soldiers can go on rioting day after day, as they've done in Portland, Oregon, with no visible means of support? Follow the money, as the old saying goes, but our reporters today either lack the ability or the interest to do so. He says, where are the reporters in our mainstream press looking into the misinformation and outright deceptive statistics regarding coronavirus? All too many of them seem to take the recommendations and orders from various government agencies at face value. And finally, our technology of the last 30 years has drastically changed the world of journalism. No longer must we accept the stories of the New York Times or NBC as gospel. We can become investigators ourselves, seeking out other online reporters and commentators who either confirm or refute those stories. He says, surely all thinking Americans recognize the importance of a free press, newspapers and television reporting on events without the shackles of a dictatorial government. Such control of the news is a mark of fascism or communism, and it's unacceptable among people who prize liberty. But he says, on the other hand, is a mainstream press so mired in the bog of its own bigotry and prejudice truly free? That's a good question. By the way, you can also leave comments. If you access the show notes on the thebrianheidshow.com, there is plenty of space there for you to leave comments, and I hope you will. I'd love to get your feedback on this as well. Can we say that we're truly free when our press is so bogged down in its own bigotry and prejudice? The good news, though, as he points out, is we have found a way to leave the gatekeeper standing there guarding gates for which there are no walls. And I know people you know they they turn their noses up you citizen journalists, how dare you call yourself a journalist? It's funny, and i've I had some fun experiences when I was covering the Bundy trial in Las Vegas a couple of years ago because I was there to to help get the the word out for the Bundy family and to take the the story as as best I could with the help of other people like John Lamb and Kelly Stewart and um, others who Who were there to make sure that the mainstream media narrative was not the only narrative that was being told about what was happening in that courtroom, and it was kind of fun you know from the standpoint of i really didn 't want to be there in the to the courtroom and the courthouse is a pretty forbidding place, and very, very strict rules, no phones, no nothing you know you have to you have to sit there expressionless you know if you so much as smiled, the marshals could come and ask you to leave the courtroom because that could be construed as cheerleading. But it was so interesting to hear what was going on, to go back and report on that. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like, a, you know, my ego grew as I saw the the number of views of our Facebook videos that we put up. But it was very gratifying to see how that uh, that organic growth of people wanting to get a. Uh, I'm not going to say spin free, because, frankly, I, I had my own spin, but it was simply to, to tell the truth with with. Uh, without the obligatory well of course we know the Bundys are guilty and the only question is will a jury do its job and find them guilty you know there, there were sides of the story that simply hadn't been told they were omitted for whatever reason political correctness or others and it was so gratifying to see the number of people accessing those videos as, as we put those out there and showing that yeah this is actually a very viable way to do an end run around those uh, media outlets or those guardians of truth who wouldn't tell the truth Anyway, a fun thing to be a part of, and I think we need more people doing exactly that.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm so glad that you could join us today as we revel in wrong think. Two more things that I'd like to share with you in this hour of the show. Um, I don't know how your psyche is feeling these days. You know, I don't know if you, if, if you give yourself regular, you know, self-examinations as far as your psychological well-being, but I feel pretty safe in saying most of us are feeling a little beat up lately, a little bruised, a little traumatized, and it's, it's understandable. I mean, how much in our lives has changed, and not necessarily in a good way, in the last four months? A lot, right? So those beat-up psyches, is there something more to it than simply, well, you and I seem to be having trouble coping with reality? What if I were to suggest that there is a psychological warfare plan that is playing out before us, and that that might have something to do with some uh, some of the pain that we're feeling? Annie Holmquist writing for intellectualtakeout.org references the 1958 psychological warfare plan that is playing out before us. She says, I recently wrote about an old 1984 interview with a former communist, Yuri Bezmenov, who described the ideological subversion which could eventually take down America. Now she says, I know it sounds like the stuff of conspiracy theories until one realizes that his predictions of demoralization destabilization and crisis are all unfolding before our eyes. But here's what's really interesting. She says, pondering his prophetic words, I hunted up an old book a friend mentioned to me years ago, The Naked Communist. Sorry, I'm just going to look over. Yep, there it is. It's on my bookshelf. Woo! (laughs) Now she says, the title, I admit, is chuckle-worthy, but the words inside are no laughing matter, particularly when one reads the section titled, importance of the psychological war written in 1958 some of the current strategy goals which the communists and their fellow travelers are seeking to achieve seemed dated and read like a history book from the past but then one comes to item number 17 quote get control of the schools use them as transmission belts for socialism and current communist propaganda Soften the curriculum, get control of teachers associations, put the party line in textbooks, end quote. That part about soften the curriculum, she says, really caught her attention. And she asks, haven't Americans been suspicious for years that public school curriculum has been dumbed down? Prominent public figures have certainly made this claim, while a comparison of middle school reading lists from today's schools and those of 100 years ago provides some other convincing evidence. But she says things take a step closer to home by encouraging the use of student riots to foment public protests against programs or organizations which are under communist attack. We've had not a little experience with riots and protests lately, says Annie Holmquist, many of which have been heavily attended by young people. Are they mere tools in the hands of an ideology we don't realize is pulling the strings? And she says even more terrifying, the list progresses from student riots to the cancel culture and statue bashing we're also currently experiencing. From the book, continue discrediting American culture by degrading all forms of artistic expression. Item number 22 commands item 31 calls for communists to belittle all forms of American culture and discourage the teaching of American history. The document also suggests discrediting both the Constitution and the founding fathers of the latter, it says, present them as selfish aristocrats who had no concern for the common man. Kind of sounds similar to the slave-holding racists mantra that the founders are now being portrayed as, doesn't it? She says the list is extensive, and many of the items listed as eventual goals are now accepted parts of our culture, but she says there's one more that deserves a closer look create the impression that violence and insurrection are legitimate aspects of the American tradition, that students and special interest groups should rise up and use, quote, united force to solve economic, political or social programs. Wow. Annie Holmquist says since the death of George Floyd, protests and violence have become commonplace. The large gatherings banned by our governments during the COVID-19 pandemic suddenly became necessary for fighting racism. Indeed, systemic racism is increasingly labeled as a public health crisis, which Black Lives Matter must wage war against. Furthermore, she says complete unity is demanded from the public. Those who refuse to go along or fail to say anything at all are immediately ostracized. So where does this leave us? Should we start running around screaming, the communists are coming, the communists are coming? No. Annie Holmquist says now is not the time to lose our heads. Rather, we should look at this historical list recognize the parallels it has with our current culture, and then ask ourselves whether there's an ideology working to undermine the values, history, and ideas upon which America was founded. If we conclude that there is, then she says we have a decision to make. Do we accept that ideology and allow it to take over America? If so, it's time to join the throngs of corporations, politicians, and average citizens in agitating for change. But... She says, if we decide that ideology is not in line with what we believe, nor with the direction we want to see America go, then we must be ready to choose the road less traveled. This road is one of standing up for truth and justice. It also involves warning others of the consequences which come from giving away from giving way rather to an ideology completely opposed to what America has sought to protect and advance over the years. As the naked communist implies, she says, the alarm bell has been sounding for many years. Now we just need the ears to hear and respond to it. I really love her insights. And again, this will be linked in the show notes. All right. One final thought here. Uh, We just passed on the 20th, the uh, anniversary of man landing on the moon. 51st anniversary. And by the way, when people say, well, you know, the moon landing was faked. I like to counter them with, oh, you're one of those people who believes there's a moon just you know to see the look on their face actually paul rosenberg points out something very interesting that has happened to our, our our drive since that time it's titled to be young and headed to the stars and he says i would pay dearly for young people to feel like to feel what it was like to be a scientifically minded child in the 1960s he says it was a special and beautiful moment each week there was a new step toward the stars And this was not science fiction. This was real. There was an exhilaration to it that I don't think can be found in any other venture. The door to infinite space was creaking open for us. Never in all the long history of mankind had the heavens been reachable. And then suddenly they were. Satellites were going up one after another and functioning. A few men strapped perilously to the tops of dangerous rockets followed. Then came the Gemini program and our first serious steps away from the planet. As it moved forward, we saw men living in space for more and more days at a time, as they learned to rendezvous. They even left their capsule and walked in space. And then we geared up for a trip to the moon and succeeded. He says, why wouldn't a young person believe humanity was on its way to the stars? Humanity was on its way to the stars. And on top of that, we had Star Trek. Remember that while Star Trek was clearly fiction, it was easy to see it as just a few steps ahead of us. And Star Trek was all about morality tales. We looked forward not only to an interesting future, but a good one, where we all became better. And again, this was not at all unreasonable, as we were taking clear steps toward it day by day. This was real. And then, it all stopped. Skylab and the shuttle were steps backward, useful mostly for saving face. Humanity stopped progressing and pulled back from the stars. He says, if any of us still need a reason to judge government as unworthy for our time and treasure, here it is. Since space was closed, we've endured boring, washed-out decades focused on anything but the awe-inspiring, the good, and the heroic. Five-plus decades have been stripped of the greatest excitement, discovery, and growth that was ever within humanity's grasp. Our current era features no goals save bodily comfort and no aspirations save existence and status. Underlying it all is a palette of manufactured fears that can only be sabbed by buying the right products or electing the right politicians. We're living through the triumph of manipulation and the disappearance of vigorous individuals. And he shares some quotes from the men who actually walked on the moon to illustrate what he's talking about. This is one from Edgar Mitchell, Mitchell from Apollo 14 on the return trip home. Gazing through 240,000 miles of space toward the stars and the planet from which I had come, I suddenly experienced the universe as intelligent, loving, harmonious. My view of our planet was a glimpse of divinity. We went to the moon as technicians. We returned as humanitarians. Or here's one from Buzz Aldrin. As Neil and I first stood on the surface of the moon looking back at Earth, a bright blue marble suspended in the blackness of space, The experience moved us in ways we could not have anticipated. There are a couple other great quotes there, but I'm going to encourage you. Click on the link in the show notes and read it for yourself. Paul Rosenberg says, please remember that everything done back then was done with technology that's now obsolete. His point being, the stars are not beyond our grasp. It's our lives that have been restrained and our expectations that have been neutered. Modern existence, the televised and taught-in-government-schools kind, can see nothing beyond comfort and status. Discovery is a non-factor. The lives they advertise feature endless activity, but it's devoid of substance. Still, he says, a doorway to the stars stands open to us, but we must act on our own rather than waiting for permissions that never really come.